You're listening to the Growth Experts Podcast. So if you're looking to 10X your business by learning proven growth strategies, you're in the right place. During my interviews with top CEOs, entrepreneurs, and marketers, I dig deep to uncover the real strategies, hacks, and tools to help you achieve your goals. And I'm your host, Dennis Brown. Hey, have you ever wondered how I generate thousands of inbound leads per year using LinkedIn? Well, this episode is sponsored by my guide, The Ultimate Guide to Generating Inbound Leads with LinkedIn. This is the definitive guide on how to consistently generate inbound leads using LinkedIn and social selling. So if you want a copy of that guide, just send a text to 44222 with the word L-I guide, all one word, L-I guide to 44222, or you can go to my website at askdennisbrown.com forward slash guide. Now let's get on with the show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. And today we have yet another amazing guest. His name is Eli Harris, and he may be young, but don't underestimate him. Driven by an unwavering work ethic and a desire to change the world for better, he launched two successful startups all before his 30th birthday. Now as the president and co-founder of R0, he's taking on his most ambitious challenge yet, tackling the transmission of pathogens in the COVID-19 era and beyond. So welcome to the show, Eli. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here and look forward to spending a little time with you all. Yeah. Exciting because just so you guys pay close attention here, you know, pathogens and that sort of stuff, you know, typically isn't the sexy stuff we talk about. You know, it's not a SaaS product. It's not a, you know, it's not some, you know, startup in the, in, you know, on TechCrunch or something like that. But today, just to tease you, so you lean in a little bit. Eli started a company in April of last year, and we're going to dive into this. And in less than a year, did over $11 million in sales. So if that gets your interest, then lean in because we're going to talk a little bit about how he was able to disrupt a hundred year old plus industry, right? How he was able to disrupt that industry and book over $11 million in sales in the wake of a global pandemic. But before we dive into all that and we pull that apart, give us a quick backstory. Eli, you've had another startup. Tell us a little bit about your entrepreneurial journey and then uh, we'll pull this topic apart. Absolutely. So I actually, I started my career on the foreign service track and I went out to Beijing and I did a couple of Fulbright scholarships in mainland China. I quickly got a little jaded with public sector. I thought my convictions about the world would have some sort of influence. But the truth is, I mean, you were there to fulfill a national mandate. And it, it, the, the, that world uh, didn't fit my personality as well. So I walked into a bar and that actually turned into a job at DJI down in Shenzhen. So I went down south to Shenzhen and I spent several years helping DJI, the world's largest drone company, build their enterprise business in North America and Europe. And I, after a few years there, I, I spun out with two engineers, both Chinese nationals, and the three of us built our own venture manufacturing large lithium-ion batteries. We scaled that company to two manufacturing plants, over 100 employees, 37 countries, and I was fortunate and had a, a small exit last year. To be totally transparent, it was we had a lot of ups and downs. We raised a lot of money, spent a lot of money, and batteries are a difficult business. It was not the happily ever after exit that I fantasized. But I think as a first-time entrepreneur in my 20s, to have any exit is a beautiful thing. So after almost 10 years in mainland China, I came back to the States last year. I was doing a bit of volunteer teaching and taking a little bit of time to recalibrate when the pandemic happened. And I uh, got in touch with two mentors of mine, both entrepreneurs, and we kicked off on R0. Wow. So, so you spent how long in mainland China? 10 years, you said? Seven years full-time, 10 years in and out. Yep. Wow. 
And so you started this business last, what, March, April, right when the pandemic started hitting, particularly the US, right? We started getting hit real hard with it. And what was it that, you know, what was it that attracted you to that topic other than the fact that it was on the news? I mean, did you have any background in this, you know, niche or in what you're doing? Matter of fact, why don't you explain a little bit more about what R0 does? Give it, give it a little bit of an explanation. I think that'll give a little context. Uh, yeah. So, so what we're doing is we're, we're a biosafety company. And we're trying to modernize the very old school disinfection, infection prevention industry and bring modern tools to it to create safer spaces and democratize access to these technologies that have been historically limited to the healthcare setting. So when the pandemic happened, I mean, we, we just saw the, the mass devastation across all dimensions of, of human life. And what my partners and I did is we kind of likened what happened to 9-11. How after 9-11, I mean, there are certain events throughout history that create permanent societal and infrastructural changes. And in the wake of 9-11, you have the Department of Homeland Security, which didn't exist before. You have TSA with 14,000 employees. You still can't take a water bottle or wear shoes through the airport. You go to a ball game and you walk through a metal detector. These are all new standards around security that the world adopted. And some of the psychological scar tissue after the event accelerated the creation and adoption of those standards. But we never regressed. The world had fundamentally had a new posture around security. And our thought was that something similar was happening now with biosecurity, biosafety, and these standards that all organizations will need to uphold in their respect for human health. So what we did is we actually we started studying hospitals and thinking about what do hospitals do well at infection prevention? Because ever since their advent, hospitals are a place where you actually encourage the ill to gather and you have to learn how to control the spread of disease. And what we uncovered was some, some legacy inefficiencies in both technology and in the pricing models that limited certain technologies to this industry. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's interesting. So you looked at the hospitals and you brought a really interesting parallel, which is, you know, they ask people to come together and they're all ill, and then they have to figure out how to stop the spread of those pathogens. And and so there's a lot of, you know, traditional, you know, old school businesses. Who are some of the players that kind of have dominated that space for the last 50 years? Yeah. Ecolab, SC Johnson, Diversi. I mean, these companies are all over a hundred years old and they all push commodity chemicals and there's no innovation in their DNA. They, they don't have any agility or innovation. And really, I mean, when, when some of these companies were founded in the 1800s or early 1900s, we're still selling the same product more or less. And we're still using the same means to disinfect, which is to go go around and wipe or hose things down with chemicals. Yeah, obviously very inefficient, right? So tell us a little bit. Why don't, why don't you tell us a little bit about, I mean, you know, we're diving down this rabbit hole. So let's jump in. We know that you've done about $11 million in sales since you started in April. Are you selling mainly just here in the US? Are you selling international? I mean, what's your market? Yeah, we're, we're currently selling in the US just because the truth is the capacity with the demand that's been through the roof and kind of, I guess, crawl, walk, run. We're doing a pretty fast crawl, but uh, we're building 100 units a week right now. We actually manufacture wholly in the US. All of our customer service is US-based. And yeah, we're building 100 units a week. We've shipped several hundred units and we're shipping more every day. So the two biggest ways that you were able to disrupt this industry, one was through some technological innovation and product development, and the other one is through pricing. So why don't you break kind of break down how you were able to do that or what the big differentiator was, what the value proposition was. Because my goal here, Eli, is for other people not to join 
the compete against you, but are to take the same sort of thought process that you took and make those parallels in their existing industries or into new industries and new services that they'd like to do. Because I think I think the process that you took here is powerful and beneficial. And that's the reason why I had you on the show. So why don't you kind of break down that process of how you were able to disrupt? I mean, talking a little bit about some of the innovation in the product and then pricing, and then we'll go from there. Yeah. So the, the innovation on the product. So we started looking at the limitations of the disinfection industry today and where it was falling short. And the truth is that a lot of it is execution compliance. There has never before been the ability to validate that the job was actually done. You send crews in to wipe, to spray, to clean, to disinfect. And the truth is, you don't know who was in what room, how long they were in there, what they wiped, if they did an effective job. I mean, maybe the, the crew signs their initials on a log, or if you're, if you're very fancy, you might scan a QR code, but there's no means of actually validating that the efficacy and that the job was done. So what we did is we're, we're the first company largely to embed our own IoT board and LTE chips in disinfection devices. And what you can actually do is you can in real time log data on where the devices are, who ran them, what time they were run, if the cycle was complete. And with these autonomous systems, you're removing any possibility of human error. You're actually able to create an audit trail around disinfection activities. Interesting. Uh, Let me ask you something. Is any of that intellectual property or patentable or anything like that? I mean, that process seems relatively simple and it isn't super complex, like you said. I mean, you really just attached a tracking device to these products, but is any of that, you know, are you able to protect any of that or was any of that patentable? Oh, yeah. We, we, we have a very, very aggressive IP strategy. It's about the connectivity and, and how you get these pieces to talk to each other and how you store, use, and implement that data. Good. Okay, uh, great. I, I was curious about that. I was still I'm yeah. assuming that's got to yeah. be a big differentiator for you. Yeah. And in the, in, when it comes to pricing, I mean, what we learned is that our flagship product is a large UVC light tower. And UVC is a, a certain wavelength of light that can penetrate the cell walls of virus, bacteria, mold, fungi, and, and it ruptures the DNA or RNA so that virus or bacteria can't reproduce. And these systems have been used since 1903 in hospitals using it since the 1940s. And what we learned was that hospitals that use UVC light towers have 93% fewer infections than hospitals that don't. And that data point is staggering. So, and, and, the, and what's happened is that we, there's an incidence in hospitals called hospital-acquired infections, where if you go to a hospital for a small surgery and you leave with staff or something else, that's a $30,000 financial liability for the hospital to remediate. And it's not covered by Medicare or Medicaid. So these manufacturers come in and say, hey, there's 70 years of data that shows the efficacy of using these systems at preventing these very costly incidences of infection. So they go to hospitals and they value price these UVC light towers based on the cost savings of reducing infections. And they sell a payback period but it has absolutely nothing to do with the bill of materials. So, so they're, they're value pricing these and they're extorting value from the healthcare system. So, so while we had our technological innovation and we, we built a system that has reporting and, and an audit trail and compliance, and, and that's very unique in and of itself, we're also able for the first time to break down that legacy pricing. And we're offering these systems on a subscription model 
to any organization, not just hospitals, to schools, jails, prisons, restaurants, hotels, gyms. And we're pricing it, one, based on what it costs to build, and two, offering a unique subscription model that lowers that barrier to entry. Interesting. So you're selling hardware with a subscription. Correct. So the hard, so we, we have two models. I mean, some folks, they want to CapEx it. They want to buy the, the hardware outright. And then we sell a, a monthly subscription to the software, which is that reporting and that audit trail and that data capture. Uh, or you can opt just to pay a subscription for the hardware and software monthly, and you don't actually own the product. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Interesting. So let's go back to the product a little bit, how you were able to innovate the product. Can you kind of expand on that a little bit? I, I know that you said you created some sort of an audit trail. How did you identify that as something that was significantly important to add to the equation, right? I mean, because because obviously I, you didn't come from the industry where you had a bunch of hospitals on speed dial, right? Where you could just make a bunch of phone calls. But talk to me about that product innovation process, right? I mean, because I mean, yeah, finding, yeah. finding a gap there is not always easy. You found a gap, right? You found a, a window for you to kind of jump through. And that's what you've done successfully up to this point. So can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah. So, so we had help. So early on in a roundabout way through one of my co-founders, college roommates, friends, dads, we ended up in touch with Dr. Richard Wade. And Dr. Wade actually ran Cal OSHA for 15 years. And he taught at Harvard, Oxford, UC Irvine. He wrote the disinfection protocol for the Diamond Princess cruise ship after that, the, the mass outbreak there. He was contracted by BlackRock and Google to write the disinfection protocol for all their offices. He is the Michael Jordan of the disinfection space. So we, we actually tricked him early on uh, into joining us as, as our chief scientist. And he's actually a shareholder in our business uh, and he is on our team. So Dr. Wade is the one that actually led us on this study with all of his experience, I mean, he, he's going to forget more about this industry than I'll ever learn. He is phenomenal. And he's the one who led us on this study to really understand what has been effective in hospitals from a technology and a protocol perspective, and what, what are the, what's working well, and what are the limitations, and what parts of those technologies and protocol could be extrapolated to and optimized for more dynamic commercial spaces. And it was Dr. Wade who introduced us to UVC. And really, it was, and, and I'm an engineer, my partner's an engineer. And we looked at this, and, and with Dr. Wade's help, we said, fundamentally, these UVC light towers are, they're lights on wheels with a timer. It is not rocket science. There, there's no secret sauce or special IP. And the, there's a long precedence of the efficacy. And it's been limited to the hospital setting, just one, because of awareness, and two, because of the pricing. So we, we saw this opportunity to re-engineer a system with not insignificant, but not a crazy amount of effort that could actually outcompete systems that were working in hospitals today. So we went out and we raised almost $20 million from the same fund as Tesla and SpaceX. And we brought together a really good engineering team. And in five months, we engineered a system that unequivocally, fundamentally outputs more power than any product being sold in the market today. And where we actually bridge that gap to connectivity is when we started looking at commercial spaces, we realized half the battle is creating safe spaces. The other half is marketing and rebuilding trust and communicating what you're doing. And in the hospital, that execution compliance piece is a little bit more normalized. The risk is high and the crews are trained. But in commercial settings, 
there hasn't been a precedent of being able to validate what was done. And the ability to communicate to your employees, to your patrons, to your customers, hey, before you showed up to work today, your office was disinfected. Or to let teachers and parents know at nine o'clock last night, your classroom or your child's classroom was turned over. Or if you're showing up to a yoga class, to see that that room was disinfected with hospital-grade disinfection before you arrived to that class, that is powerful. Uh, right now, there is a lot of psychological scar tissue. And I think right now, almost more difficult than creating safe spaces is rebuilding trust and getting folks comfortable returning to, to some normal sense of life. And that's where that audit trail is extremely valuable. One, from a risk mitigation and a safety perspective, and second is is really from a marketing and trust building perspective. Yeah, I like that. That's interesting. You mentioned something during that, which was the marketing component. What was your kind of your go-to market strategy? How did you create awareness about this in order to get that funnel filled? Because you started from zero, right? You didn't have a product. You didn't have a customer. You had an expert. You had engineers. Yep. But I don't hear anybody saying that they're a you know, rock star marketer, rock star sales yeah, guy, we, right? So we, we, how did you guys do that? How did you overcome that hurdle? Because that in itself, you could have the greatest product in the world, but if nobody knows about it, you know, you're going to go broke fast. Yeah. So we actually booked a million dollars in sales before we even had a website. And it was, <laughs> and it was before we even had a, a fully functional product. We had a prototype. We named it Hope. And it was short for Hope This Works. And I, I have a little surf camper van that I converted and I drove around with hope in my converted camper van. And I put 12,000 miles on that van in four months. And I was going anywhere that they would have me. And I was jumping up and down and shaking hands and kissing babies and, and telling the story. And well, I guess now not literally shaking hands and kissing babies. We were all masked and in social distancing. But uh, really, I, I, I'm a big believer. I mean, there, there are no shortcuts. It is all hard work and it's about how bad do you want it and how hard are you willing to work and put yourself out there. And, and you got to just tell the story and evangelize. And, and I think, I think uh, if you really have passion, people see that. And I think that we, we were at a, had a unique moment in time, but the truth is our first million dollars were me in my camper van with hope driving up and down California, meeting with anyone who would take me. So the first million was just straight up hand-to-hand -hand combat. You jumped in your van and you would talk to anybody and everybody who you thought might have this issue, right? Or might be able to benefit yeah. from it. You sold a million dollars. During that process, you may have, that's when the product was starting to be developed. Maybe you even finalized some of your raise up. You had raised some of the money during that time. And then now, how did you go with the next 10 million? What happened in the next 10 million? How, how, what was your go-to strategy there? How did you market yourself in order to continue to you know, ramp up the revenue? Yeah, that's a good question. So part of it is team. I mean, there is no substitute for a good team. And I think that if you have a good team, the recipe for success in my mind is context and latitude. If you give everyone the right context and give them latitude to empower them to, to take action on their own, that is the best recipe here. So that, that, was, that was half of it. We all started aligning with channel partners. As sexy as I think we are, because we raised $20 million in Silicon Valley from uh, sexy venture capital funds, industry doesn't care. They don't care that we're some hotshot Silicon Valley company. So what we did is we started aligning with channel partners that have existing customer bases and have credibility and have trust. And then 
I really, I looked at it as expensive lead gen. We were giving up margin for their relationships and credibility, but then I was still going in the field doing those sales with them and I was doing the work for them. And they were thrilled because all they had to do is open their Rolodex and leverage their existing relationships and make introductions. And I was doing all the hard work. So they're really collecting margin just for that being that bridge. And I was happy to pay that margin because it gave me credibility and respect and authority that I couldn't command on my own. So channel has been very important for us. Yeah. I mean, the fact is you didn't have enough money or time to try to ramp it up organically or even with paid ads, just because of trying to create that level of trust that you would need in order to get an introduction. But through the channel, you had an instant level of trust and introduction because of the previous relationship. So I think that was brilliant. And you know, and I don't want to overstep that because I think that a lot of people, again, have this thought process that they need to go direct, right? They need to go direct. We're in a digital world. Why can't I go direct? But direct is not always the best or fastest way. And it doesn't mean you always have to stay through channel. You can always go direct at some point during your life cycle if you choose to do that. But I think that's interesting. Okay. So listen, is there anything else you want to add about, you know, about this whole disruption process and anything that was pivotal to the success? I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of cracks to fill in and we could probably spend hours talking about the journey, but is there anything else you want to add? I got a couple more rapid fire questions and then we'll wrap it up for today. Yeah. I guess just one thing I want to say is that I don't feel like there's any secret qualification or credential that's needed to attack some of these spaces. And I think a lot of folks get, there's some inertia. There's this misconception of this legacy industry knowledge that's unattainable. But the truth is, after digging into this space, I realized that even in a world where COVID never happened and never existed, this opportunity is massive. To actually get smarter about disinfection, about when, where, and how to disinfect and be able to report on that and audit it. There's all these really old industries that have never been looked at from a a modern technological lens. And I I think it'd be, I really believe that a lot of engineers in the US want to look at the front end app development, social media, but the real opportunity is in these old industries that, and the barrier to entry is not as high as folks might expect. Love it. Perfect. All right. Well, listen, let me ask you a couple of rapid fire questions and we'll wrap it up for today. One is speaking of apps and software and technology, what's one of your favorite software app tools, something you use, maybe a SaaS product or something to help you grow your business? Oh, uh, I mean, I I feel like this is a little bit of a cop out, but Salesforce is the the source of truth. That is the source of truth. And especially as we're growing so quickly, it's just, it, it is the home where we aggregate all information that gives everyone context, whether you're on the engineering team, you're on the sales team, you're on the customer success team, especially in this kind of remote world, having that cadence for information sharing and that source of truth is critical. Love it. Love it. Having a CRM Salesforce yep. obviously is the is the 800 pound gorilla at this stage. So yep. what would be one book that you would recommend for the audience? Something maybe you've read recently helped you on your journey or you think might help them on, a, on theirs? Oh. And yes, you can only pick one. Oh, that's a good question. I just started reading Innovator's Dilemma. I'm not far into it by Clayton Christensen, and it's uh, it's been a good read. I I think it's timeless. Yeah, awesome, perfect. Well, listen, Eli, let everybody know how they can connect with you, learn more about what you got going on over at R Zero, and then we'll wrap it up for today. 
Uh, yeah, uh, my email, my personal email is Eli at r0systems.com. You can feel free to reach out to me directly. We have a lot of information on our website, r0.com. And happy to, to get in touch and share more about what we're doing and talk about any synergies. Thank you for your time. And uh, it was great to be here. Appreciate it. Congrats on all your success. I'm sure we'll chat again soon. Thank you. Listeners, I want to thank you for tuning in. I truly appreciate your time. If you're enjoying the podcast, then do me a huge favor. Click the subscribe button now and please leave me a review. It would mean a lot to me.